we're in Joshua chapter 24. We come to the last chapter of Joshua. These were exciting times for the people of Israel. They had defeated their enemies. They had claimed the promised land. Each of the tribes had received their inheritance, and now they could settle down and enjoy life. So it was exciting. It was a time of hope. It was a time of prosperity. It was a time of blessing. But it was also a dangerous time. Here they are in the promised land. They've been there now for 20-some years, and they are in danger that they could forget where they've come from, where God brought them from, what God did for them, how God took care of them. They're also in danger of adopting the idolatrous ways of the Canaanites around them, the people who still remained in the land. They were also in danger of falling into complacency and letting down their guard. In the midst of all of that, Joshua assembles a people one more time. This is the second of his last sermon. And he does so to challenge them to be faithful to the Lord. And it says in verse number one, Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem and summoned Israel's elders, leaders, judges, and officers. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord God of Israel says, right? So chapter 23, his first address, uh, he talked about the land, he talked about the nation. In this chapter, 23 times we find God mentioned. Joshua keeps bringing the people's attention back to what God had done for them. Another key word in chapter 24 is the word serve. It's used 15 times here in chapter 24. God gave them the land, God was going to bless them, if they would love him and if they would serve him. And so God wants them to dedicate themselves to him and to his work. And what I want us to think about tonight is that we also are always in danger of forgetting what God has done. We're always in danger of picking up from the world around us, the gods that are around us, the world and what the world worships around us. Man, it's really easy. We're really prone to to go back to worshiping the gods of this world. And I think that we are also in danger of just becoming complacent. Do you find that it's easy in the Christian life just to become complacent? Yeah, we are in the same kind of danger that I think Joshua is trying to address here in chapter 24. And so Just like the Lord, I think, calls this, he issues this call to the people of Israel through Joshua. He's telling them, make their choice. Figure out who are you going to serve. I believe that the same choice we still have to make today. And so we're going to look at these verses, and I hope that we're going to hear God's call to us today. We're going to have an opportunity tonight to decide who we are going to serve. It's either God Almighty or the gods of this world, the things that can capture our hearts and minds. And so the first thing that Joshua says here in the first half of the chapter, he says to count your blessings. Count your blessings. This is verses two through three. And so what Joshua does here is he begins to recite. He rehearses the story of God's Grace. So we saw him do this in chapter 23. He wanted to remind the people. He wanted them to remember what God had done for them. And so here in chapter 24, he reminds them of some things. First of all, he reminds them that God had called them, that God had chose them. Look at verse 2. 
He says, long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Naor, lived beyond the Euphrates River. And notice what he says here. And they worshiped other gods. I know the tendency that we have nowadays. We have this tendency to look back on biblical people like Abraham as if they were always this kind of Mr. Goodwrench. Remember Mr. Goodwrench? You remember Mr. Goodwrench? Yeah, I mean the solid, this, this good, helpful kind of a guy, right, that, that he was already solid and God just had to give him a little bit of help and that he was well on his way, he had all this truth and, and he was well on his way and that, that God just needed to give him a little shove and, but Abraham was all of this guy, he was already all of this man of God when the, when the truth of the matter is is when you look back at Israel's history, you go all the way back to Abraham and Abraham's ancestors, we find that Abraham and the entire story of the Israelites is a story of God's grace. And it's really amazing grace, like Isaac uh, Newton, or John Newton, I guess it was, uh, wrote about, right? So amazing that we can't believe it. So what do we do? We go on concocting all of our graving images of biblical all-stars like Abraham. When in reality, Abraham came from an idolatrous family. Abraham rose out of this pit of despondency, this desolate pit of miry bog of paganism, and the grace of God made something out of Abraham. And there's a people, the fact that these people that are standing at Shechem, listening to Joshua's words on these days, the fact that they are a people of God, it really just hangs on this single thread of the grace, the mere grace of God, who when he spoke to Abraham, Abraham responded with faith, and God counted it for righteousness. Look at verse 3. He says, but I took your father Abraham beyond... uh, from the region beyond the Euphrates River, and led them throughout the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants. And I gave him Isaac, verse four, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave the hill country of Seir to Esau as a possession. Jacob and his sons, however, went down to Egypt. So so Joshua's telling the story. God's reminding his people of how, how God started with Abraham, and then he multiplied his seed. It took 25 years after God promised to make Abraham this great nation. It took 25 years for fatherless Abraham to have a son. God gave him Isaac, and that's what he's reminding them of. He gave him Isaac, and then God multiplied his seed again. God gave Abraham two grandsons 20 years later. You following this? It seems to me as if God wasn't in a hurry. You ever get in a hurry? I'm always in a hurry. God wasn't in a hurry. He had a plan. He was going to make something of Abraham and his seed. His desire was to make a nation of them that would bless the earth because the Messiah would come through the people of Israel. But God wasn't in a hurry. But here what God did was he started with one guy and he multiplied his seed one times one, right? I mean, he gave him Isaac and then he gave him two grandsons. And then over a period of time that the tribes grew. Isaac had 12 sons. Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons, 12 tribes. They 
they went into Egypt, and they were there for 400 years. And during that 400 years, God multiplied the seed of Abraham. So, so God is the one who called them. He chose Abraham. He chose Israel. But we also see that God then delivered. He delivered Israel. He brought them out of Egypt. Verse 5. I sent Moses and Aaron. I defeated Egypt by what I did within it. And afterward, I brought you out when I reached, excuse me, verse 6, when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and you reached the Red Sea, the Egyptians pursued your ancestors with chariots and horsemen as far as the sea. Your ancestors cried out to the Lord, so he put darkness between them and the Egyptians and brought the sea over them, engulfing them. Your own eye saw what I did to Egypt. You see what's happening there? Remember all that? Remember, remember learning that in your Bible stories, right? I mean, what God did, how the, the ten plagues and, and how he brought them out and how he swallowed up Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. I mean, God did all this. God, guided, he, he delivered them out of Egypt and then he goes on, he says he guided them in the wilderness. Verse seven, after that, you lived in the wilderness a long time. Yeah, 40 years. Because of their sin at Kadesh Barnea, they had to wander through the wilderness for 40 years, but during that 40 years, God graciously guided them, a, a pillar of cloud in the day, a pillar of fire at night, God guided them. Every step of the way, God, uh, while they were in the, uh, in the wilderness, it says there in verse number eight, later, during the wilderness wanderings, I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived beyond Jordan. They fought against you, but I handed them over to you. You possessed their land, and I annihilated them before you. So God led his people, and he even led them on to victory. And whether Satan came at Israel as a lion like the Amorites, or as a serpent, the curses of Balaam, the Lord led them, and he defeated their enemies. Verse, the next verse there in verse 9, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent out to fight against Israel. He sent for Balaam, son of Beor, uh, to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam. Instead, he repeatedly blessed you, and I rescued you from him. You see what's going on here? God called them. God guided them. He delivered them. And he provided for them. Verse 11, you then crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. Jericho's citizens as well as the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hethites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, they fought against you, but I handed them over to you. I sent hornets ahead of you, and they drove you out, uh, drove out the two Amorite kings before you. It was not by your sword or bow. I gave you a land you did not labor for, the cities you did not build, though you live in them, you are eating from vineyards in olive groves you did not plant. Except for the temporary defeated Ai, which was, uh, you know, a terrible defeat, but they rallied. They, they then went and defeated Ai, and then the compromise that they had with Gibeon, chapter 9, verses seven, chapter 7 and 9, really the low points in, that, in their conquest. But other than that, Joshua and the army defeated every enemy in the land. How did they do that? How did they do that, church? The Lord fought for them. That's how. I don't know if you've noticed as we just read through those first 13 verses, how many times God says, I did this. 
I'm the one who delivered you. I'm the one who saved you. I'm the one who led you. I'm the one who fought for you. God is the one who provided for them. He made them who they were. And it's really easy. I think we easily miss the fact that this is a history that should never have happened. This should never have happened. This is only the grace of God. This, this can only be explained by the power of God. Why there was and why there is now in Israel, why, why Israel standing here at Shechem listening to Joshua, it's only because of God. In fact, I think we could summarize these first 13 verses with three words. God is good. That's the summary. It's all God. And I think it's wise for us today to contemplate all that the Lord has done for us. Right? Do you take time to reflect upon where God found you? Where did God find you? Where were, where were you in life when God reached down and pulled you out of the miry clay? Where were you? What about the grace of God in your life? What he did for you, how he saved you, how he set you on a rock, how he began to, to transform your life, right? I mean, how has your life changed since you met Jesus Christ? That is the work of God. That is all the grace of God, and we need to remember that. We have to reflect back on that. We have to take time to contemplate what God has done for us, how he's worked in us and on our behalf. Listen, church, time and time again, how he's answered our prayers, how he's met our needs. We need to remember his power in our lives. We need to remember the fact that God has never abandoned us. He never has. He's been faithful. We haven't always been faithful, have we? No, we haven't. We have not always been faithful. If, you know, if we were God, what we would do to us, you know, we would just, you know, we would, we would put us out of our misery if we were God, if we could play God. But thank God that he's faithful. Thank God that, that he hasn't abandoned us, that his grace continues. Listen, we don't deserve any of this. This is what grace is all about. But what happens when we stop counting our blessings, what do we do? We start taking our blessings for granted, and then what happens? We then easily drift away from the Lord. I think it's where it starts. When we just stop counting our blessings. That's what's happened to Israel. They've been in the land now some 20 years, and they have already begun drifting away from the Lord. And Joshua's like, guys, time out. Stop and remember who you are. Stop and remember who God is and what the Lord has done for you. And I believe this is an exercise that we must do. And so what Joshua does is he basically he draws a line in the, the sand, figuratively speaking. Uh, every good sermon, this is a sermon here that he's preaching, every good sermon has a call to action. And what Joshua does here is he encourages them to count their blessings, blessings and then he draws a line in the sand and says, okay, now choose your God. Choose who you're going to serve. This is number two. So he says, count your blessings. Second point in his sermon is, choose your God. This should be an easy decision. 
right? What, what they should choose. Look at verse number 14. Look at the word therefore. Verse 14, right? So he's just given them the history. He's just counted their blessings. And then in verse number 14, he says, therefore, fear the Lord. Worship him. Get rid of your, get rid of your false gods. What is he saying? He's saying what you should choose because of God's goodness, because of God's grace on us as a people, he says what we ought to do is we ought to choose God because God has chosen us, because God in his grace has reached down to us, because God in his grace has made a people of us. We should choose God. What did Joshua choose? He says in verse 14 and 15, he says you choose today. But I can tell you what I choose at the end of the verse, verse 15. He says, as for me and my family, we will worship the Lord. This is probably one of the most famous Old Testament verses in the Bible. We've all heard sermons on Joshua 24, 15. As for me and my house, as it says in in other translations, we will serve the Lord. What is, what is Joshua doing here? He's making, first of all, a personal choice. He says, as for me. And listen, in the end, it always comes down to this. We have to make a personal decision on who we're going to serve and worship. It has to be a personal decision. I grew up in a pastor's home, grew up in a a Christian family, went to a Christian school, went to a Christian Bible college. I've been in the church since I could, you know, since I was born. I mean, I have been, when I was a kid, man, we were in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, uh, three times on, you know, three times during the week and all day on Saturday. I mean, listen, uh, you could do all of that. And you could be a part of the church your entire life, but it comes down to something. You still have to make a personal choice whether you're going to serve God or not. You can go to church all you want, but the question is, is have you made the choice to actually serve God and worship him? This is what it comes down to. We have to choose personally to serve the Lord. We have to make it personal. Hey, maybe you grew up in a Christian family like I did. What I want you to know is your parents, your pastor, your church family, we can give you a heritage, but at some point you have to make up your own mind. Joshua's choice is personal. It's also public. He's standing up in front of the crowd. He's standing up in front of all the people. And he's saying, as for me and my family, here's what we're going to do. We're going to serve the Lord. Here's what he's saying. I don't care what the rest of you do. I'm going to serve God. Even though he's the leader of a nation, he is willing to part with his own people over this very fundamental issue. And I think we all have to say this sooner or later as well. Because if you follow Jesus, there's going to come a time where you have to say, do what you want, whatever you do, I'll still be your friend, but I'm going to serve the Lord. Sometimes it comes down to just that. Joshua's choice was personal. His choice was public. And his choice, I think, was meant to be persuasive. Because Joshua wants them to choose the same thing. Right? I mean, this is why he's given the sermon. 
This is, why he's, this is why he's repeating the history. This is why he's called them all together because he wants his decision to follow the Lord to, be persu- to, to persuade them to follow the Lord. What could they choose? Joshua tells them what they should choose. He tells them what he chose. And he, he also explains what they could choose. It says in verse number 15, if it doesn't please you to worship the Lord, choose for yourselves today which you will worship, the gods of your ancestors, the gods your ancestor, ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. You can go back and you can, well, you can Google this. And you can see depictions. I think they'll have a slide up here. Depictions. Uh, these, are, these are little depictions of Canaanite gods that have been found by archaeologists. And the Canaanites were polytheistic. They had a pantheon. They had many different gods, up to, up to 10, at least 10, probably more. Some of their gods uh, uh, included El, which, by the way, El is also a name by which God is called in the Old Testament. But El was the supreme Canaanite deity. He was the head of the pantheon. And in accordance with the general irrationality and and moral grossness of the Canaanite religion, El was a dim and shadowy figure who was said to have three wives who were also his sisters and who could readily step down from his eminence and become the hero of sordid escapades and crimes. Uh, Philo portrays El as a bloody tyrant whose acts terrified all the other gods and who dethroned his own father, murdered his favorite son, and decapitated his own daughter. Uh, In the Urigatic poems, which uh, was a city in ancient Syria, there are poems and a lot of literature from that part uh, of the world during the Bronze Age, and they, those, in some of those writings, it adds certain crimes to, to El's raps, uh, rap sheet, uh, um, uncontrolled lust to his morbid character, the description of his uh, seduction of two unnamed women in the most sensuous in ancient literature. In fact, you, you read this literature and it's rated R at best. This is the type of religion that they had. Their God, El, was not a holy, righteous God like the God of the Israelites, Yahweh, El, that we, uh, El's used throughout the Old Testament. But they were very corrupt, wicked beings. Uh, Anath was a combination of a sister and a spouse of, of Baal. She was represented by a, a naked woman bestride a lion with a lily in one hand rec- representing her sex appeal and a serpent in another representing fertility and the male prostitutes of the religion were consecrated to her honor. I mean, this is, this is, these are their gods. A Baal, the Canaanite fertility god who supposedly made the earth bear crops and women bear children. Rites involved uh, with the Baal worship included cult prostitution, and sometimes even um, human sacrifice. Uh, The famous showdown between the prophets of Baal, remember this, uh, on Mount Carmel with the prophet Elijah, remember that? And uh, the prophets uh, of Baal were cutting themselves, crying out to their God, trying to get Baal to rain down fire in this little uh, match that they had going with uh, Elijah. But there were all these different sorts of gods. And Joshua says, look, 
Worship their gods if you want. You can choose to worship the gods of the Canaanites. Or he says you can worship the gods of the Egyptians. They had over 40 false gods. Ray and Isis and and, uh, Thoth and Horus. I mean, there's just a long litany of false gods that the Egyptians had as well. And Joshua just says, look, make your choice. Either choose Yahweh, the God who delivered you, the God who guided you, the God who provided you, or the gods of the Canaanites and the Egyptians. Now here's the thing. Joshua lays this out in a very simple way. He says, first of all, this is a logical choice. To choose Yahweh is a logical choice. He uses that word I alluded to a minute ago, verse 14, therefore, fear the Lord. Worship him. He's saying this. He's basically saying, look, the only reasonable response to the overwhelming goodness of God is to worship Yahweh, to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, we find Paul making the same point in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I think the the words are here on the screen here, right? This is what Paul What Paul writes, therefore, brothers and sisters, in the view of the mercies of God, right? In view of what God, the the grace and the mercy of God, what God has done, count your blessings, right? I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good and pleasing in the perfect will of God, right? You see what Paul's doing here? It's like, this is, a, this is reasonable. This is logical because of what God has done, because of his grace and mercy. Worship him, fear him, give yourself to him. It's a logical choice. Why is it so logical? Well, not only because of the goodness of God, but because there's only one God, There's only one. Throughout the Old Testament, God was constantly reminding his people of this. This is Moses in Deuteronomy 4. He says, has a God attempted to go and take a nation as his own out of another nation by trials and signs and wonders and war by a strong hand and outstretched arm, by terrors, great terrors, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? You were shown these things so that you would know that the Lord is God, there is God. No one, no other besides him. You see, it's just reasonable. It just makes logical sense to worship the real God, the only God, the living God, not some false God, not some God. uh, David writes this, Psalm 96, for all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. It's just logical. Why would you worship something that has the next verse here that David says, their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths, but they can't speak. Eyes, they can't see. Ears, they can't hear. Noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they can't feel. uh, uh, Feet, but they can't walk. They can't make a sound with their throats. Just pretty logical, isn't it? Why would you pray to a God? Why would you worship and serve a God that doesn't really exist other than in the figment of your imagination or in some little figurine that you hold. And while that little figurine may have eyes, it can't see you, has ears, it can't hear you pray. It has hands, but it has no power to do anything for you. It's just a little piece of clay or metal. 
or wood. It's logical, isn't it? Joshua says, hey, worship God, but you get to choose. It's also an exclusive choice because Joshua goes on here and he makes it real clear that you have to choose one or the other, right? Real clear. You pick, you choose, A or B, Yahweh or the gods of the Amorites and the gods of the Egyptians. If you're gonna choose Yahweh, it's all or nothing. It's not Yahweh and El and Baal and the rest of them. You can't take Yahweh and pull him into your pantheon. It's one or the other. It's all or nothing. Israel must give themselves completely to God or not at all. It's the hog's dilemma in that old familiar hog and hen story. Remember this? Both the hen and hog, they're walking past a church sign and they notice the pastor's sermon on the billboard, what can we do to help the poor? And so as they're walking by, as hogs and hens do, they entered into this earnest conversation, you know, uh, over this question as they continued. And at last, the hen was smitten with a bright idea. I've got it, she, she cacked. Uh, we can help the poor by giving them a ham and eggs breakfast. Oh, no, you don't, shot back the hog. For you, that only means a contribution. But for me, it means total commitment. And the hog was exactly right. And that's Joshua's point here. Joshua's point is that there can be no chicken's way out, but Israel must go whole hog for Yahweh. All in. All in total commitment. They, had, they were to consider themselves uh, completely God's. There's no comprom- compromise on this point. And so what do the people do? Look at verse 16. They affirm, we will certainly not abandon the Lord to worship other gods. And they go on in verses 17 and 18, and they, they recollect themselves, the goodness of God, what God had done for them, and what they said from their own lips was, how could we worship any other God? How could we worship a false God? We will not abandon God. We will worship God. And so what do you think Joshua does? He's like, oh, wonderful. No, that's not what he does. Look at this. Look at verse number 19. But Joshua told the people, real encouraging here, he says, you will not be able to worship the Lord because he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. Look what he says next. He will not forgive your transgressions and sins. What? What, Joshua? What in the world is Joshua doing here? Here's what he's saying. He's saying it's a logical choice. It's an exclusive choice. But let me tell you something. It's a, ca- it's a cautious choice. You better be careful. If you're going to make this choice, you have to realize something, that God is a holy God. God is a jealous God. Israel was married to Yahweh. He would not tolerate any rivals in their hearts. 
You cannot even permit them to be divided in their loyalty. Just as a husband and a wife in marriage are to be faithful to one another and jealously guard over their mate's affection, so Israel and the Lord were to be faithful to each other. And Joshua says, look, you cannot think that you can just go on sinning and sinning and sinning and just expect God to keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. What, what is Joshua saying? Here's what I think he's saying. You can't play games with God. You can't play games. You cannot just mouth a little profession of, yes, we choose God, and then go on living the same way that you have been living and worshiping your false gods. It's one or the other. God is a holy God. God is a jealous God. He's not going to play around. He wants your complete allegiance. And church, this is the fact of the matter. God wants our complete allegiance allegiance he wants all of us we just sang the song he's the same God the same God who had Joshua speak these words to his people he is the same God that we serve tonight he's the same God we worship tonight you see yes he is loyal yes he is faithful yes he is gracious and yes he wants us to be loyal and faithful to him. Joshua is saying, look, if you choose God to be your God, you have to realize who God is, and you have to know what God's nature is all about. So don't lightly mouth a profession without counting the costs. You know, the former generation, if you go back to Exodus 19, this is shortly after they had come out uh, of Egypt, and they were beginning their wilderness wanderings. Uh, the Lord met them at Mount Sinai, and it says that, that the Lord, uh, they said, all that the Lord has spoken will do, right? All, gave them the law, gave them the Ten Commandments. Oh, yeah, we're going to do that. We're going to do that. <coughs> a few weeks later, they build a golden calf. There they go, worshiping it. It was easy for the people to promise obedience to the Lord, but it was quite something else for them to actually do it. Look at verse 20. Joshua says, If you abandon the Lord and worship foreign gods, he will turn against you, harm you, and completely destroy you after he has been good to you. Wow. He's been good. But if you reject him, if you abandon him, He's going to do you harm. This is what the scripture is very clear on. God would be kind to them. God would continue to give them safety and victory in the land. But if they turned against him, if they didn't rid themselves of their idols, they would eventually forsake the Lord and all of that would turn sour for them. And so Joshua is just saying, look, look just because you've been blessed, it doesn't mean that you're always going to be blessed. Just because you're living in the land of milk and honey, it doesn't mean that you're always going to be living in the land of milk and honey. And so Joshua, he's giving them these stern words. They, they just said, yeah, we want to ban the Lord. But he gives them this stern word to curb their overconfidence and to cause them to look honestly in their own heart. And so again, a second time, look at verse 21. They say this again, second time. We choose God. A second time. 
Joshua, we're not kidding. We choose God. And so Joshua says, okay then. Third point in the sermon. He says, well then consecrate yourselves. Look at verse 23. He says, then get rid of the foreign gods that are among you and turn your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. He says the same thing in verse 14. Fear the Lord, worship him in sincerity and truth and get rid of the gods of your fathers. So what is this consecration all about? I think he breaks it down into four thoughts and I'll give these to you quickly. First of all, it's point blank. You gotta get rid of the foreign gods. You gotta get rid of the idols. You see what's happened? You see in verse 23? Get rid of the foreign gods that are among you. They already had the foreign god. They already had the little idols in their, in their tents. They already had them in their hands. They already had them on their person. Joshua says, you got to get rid of them. Get them out of your house. You can't be involved with them anymore. Not in any way, shape, or form. They have to go. Not tomorrow, not next week, today. Choose today. Are you going to serve Yahweh or are you going to serve the idols? And I think this goes for us too. If we're going to choose God, the idols have to go. Our idols have to go. What's an idol? Well, an idol is anything that you love more than God. Anything you fear more than God. Anything you serve more than God. And I think we could break them down into two little groups. God, the gods of our predecessors and the, God of, the gods of the populace. What are the gods of our predecessors? These are the little idols that get passed down from generation to generation. We got some from our parents. You know, they've been in the family a long time, right? Mom and dad had some little thing they worshiped, some little idol they worshiped. It wasn't an actual idol, right? But something that got hand, handed down, right? And so uh, Joshua says that, remember? You can worship the gods of your ancestors. And I wonder tonight, have you ever stopped to think about it? What kind of an idol do you have going on in your life? What little god is there in your life? Little G-god that you got from your granddaddy, or your papa, you know, your mom or your dad. What did they worship? What were, what were their gods? Maybe, maybe it was the god of materialism. Boy, that's one that gets passed down real easily, especially in, in uh, American culture. So there's the, god, uh, the gods of, the, of our predecessors, and I think there's also the gods of the populace, and, and that's the world around us. That, those were the gods of the Amorites and the gods of the Egyptians, right? And what do those look like? Well, some of these idols are quite tangible. You can actually hold them, like material things, right? Like money. Boy, money is a, a big god in Western culture, possessions, the things that we can have can become such an idol in our life. Look, money isn't bad. The Bible doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. What does it say? The love of money is the root of all evil, right? But, but money, possessions, boy, that becomes, that can be such a big problem in our lives in 2023. If we, if we love money, if, if, if it's money that we serve, it's, if it's the, the gaining of Material things, if that's what we're living for in life, it is an idol. It is a God in our life. There's the God of jobs and status. 
Look, a job used to be a way to make ends meet and provide for a family, but today what you do often becomes who you are. It often becomes what dictates your time, the lion's share of your time, right? How, how our jobs, how our, our careers can occupy us and really become a God in our life. Again, yeah, we're to work, we're to, we're to work hard. Christians are to be the, the hardest workers on the job. Nobody should go out of here and get rid of your job because it's been an idol in your life. No, just put it in its right place. But, but our jobs, uh, there's the God of family and children. I mean, you think about your spouse, you think about your children, they're a blessing from God, yes, but like money, what happens is, is we tend to worship the gift rather than the giver. We tend to put even our, our family and our children ahead of God. There's the God of entertainment. There's the God of identity. There's the God of comfort, the God of influence and fame, the God of sex. I mean, there are so many different gods that can occupy our hearts and our minds and our lives today. And listen, this isn't a list of things to avoid. This isn't a list so that we beat ourselves down with, oh, I got possessions, or oh, I have a desire to, for this or for that. That's not the point. It's not meant to be ammo to shoot at other people. But when a good thing becomes the ultimate thing, the ultimate, it ultimately becomes a destructive thing in our life. That's idolatry. That is idol worship. Let me give you four questions to help you identify idols in your life. I don't think I have them on a slide, but they're on that page on our website if you want to have them for later. Because I would encourage you to, to think through these questions. Number one, where do I spend my time? Where do I spend my time? Number two, where do I spend my money? Number three, where do I get my joy? And number four, what's always on my mind? Where do I spend my time? Where do I spend my money? Where do I get my joy? What's always on my mind? If you can honestly take the time to think through those and be honest with yourself enough to answer them accurately, you can identify if there is an idol in your life. And once you've identified the idol, what does the Bible say we should do? Get rid of it. Get rid of it. That's where it has to start. We get rid of the idols of our life. Number two, we then choose to turn our heart to the Lord. Verse 23, get rid of the foreign gods that are among you and turn your hearts to the Lord. The word turn there means to incline, to stretch out Torah. What is Joshua doing here? He's calling the people to repentance. Saying, get rid of the foreign gods. Turn your heart. Turn away from the idols. Get rid of them and turn your heart to the Lord. Church, this is what we are to do. Once we've identified idols in our life, we're to turn our heart back to the Lord. And then what? Then we choose to fear him, number three, and worship him, number four. What does it mean to fear the Lord? What does that mean? Does it mean that we're to quake and tremble when we think about God? No. 
The fear of the Lord just simply refers to holding God in reverence and not deliberately disobeying him or trying his patience. Fearing God is both an attitude and an action. It's an attitude of reverence and awe and respect toward God, and it is action of obedience. It is not doing anything that displeases God. It is doing what pleases God. So the fear of the Lord doesn't paralyze us. It doesn't cause us to quake and tremble when we think about God. You know, like, oh, if I don't do what's right, then he's going to get me. It's, that's not the fear of, that we're talking about here. The fear of the Lord doesn't paralyze us. The fear of the Lord mobilizes us to walk in God's ways. Because when we truly fear the Lord, we're comfortable in his presence, right? When we truly fear the Lord, we are doing what God says. We are living in obedience to him. And so we come to God, we're comfortable in God's presence because there's no open disobedience in our life. We're not afraid of God. We're, we're, we respect God. We're in awe of him. But it mobilizes us to come into God's presence and to walk with God intimately. So Joshua says, look, get rid of your foreign gods. Turn your heart back to God and then fear him. And verse 14, worship him. How? In sincerity and with truth. Both of those are necessary if we are going to truly worship the Lord. The word sincerity there just speaks of no blemish. It's complete. It's, it's whole. Joshua is saying that worshiping God is to be sincere. I don't think there's anything more insulting to God than half-hearted worship. And I, I think we, do, are we guilty of this? We, we sing a song, same God, and it's just half-hearted. No heart in it, no interaction with God in it, just mouthing the words, singing the tune, but there's no sincerity in it. I don't know that there's anything that's more insulting to God than worshiping, with, worshiping him without sincerity, but if we're gonna worship God, not only do we have to worship him with sincerity, but we must also worship him with truth. There's no point in worshiping the true God without truth, right? not my truth not your truth right the truth if we're going to worship God then we have to worship God by the truth by the book this book true worship of the true God has to line up with the word of God and so what is he saying how is this going to work make your choice he says choose to get rid of false gods Choose to turn your heart to God. Choose to fear God and choose to worship him. So the simple question that we wrap this up with is who will you serve? Who will you serve? In the words of Bob Dylan, you gotta serve somebody. You can't straddle the fence. There's no room for neutrality. You can't choose the true God by default or by inheritance, every person has to choose their God and every person serves the God they choose. There's two choices on the shelf, serving God or serving self. And so tonight, we have to ask ourselves, we're serving the same God. If we're talking to the same God, 
about the same God tonight, then it is up to us some 3,000 years later, more than that, to make the choice. Who will you serve? Is your mind made up to serve God? Is it made up? Remember, it's a cautious choice. We're to count the cost. We're to recognize that God is a holy and a jealous God. So if we say that we're going to worship God, if we say that we're going to serve God, we have to recognize that God holds us to that. It's what God wants. But isn't it awesome that he lets us make our own choice? Amen? He's not going to force you. He's not going to force any of us to make the choice to serve him. He lets us choose freely. So tonight, cast your vote. Choose your God. I pray that we make the right choice tonight.